Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. The volume. In the NBA, the game can change in an instant, but no matter how the action unfolds, DraftKings Sportsbook has your back. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks on basketball. Win or lose, you get an instant up. They even have great same-game parlays. So many different ways to bet the NBA. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. That's H-O-O-P-S. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball, only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, must be 21 or older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash basketball terms. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Monday, everybody. Hope all of you guys had an incredible weekend. We have like a ridiculously packed show today. We're going to be hitting on four games from last weekend. The Lakers getting a road win over the Cavs. The Philadelphia 76ers getting a road win over the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Orlando Magic continuing their dominance with a win over the Boston Celtics. And last but not least, a very interesting game between the Pelicans and the Clippers that took place on Friday night. And then after that, we're going to, every Monday from this point forward in the season, we are going to do an edition of Power Rankings. So we're going to have this week's edition of Power Rankings at the tail end of the show. You guys know the drill before you get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. 
It would mean a lot to me if you guys took a second to scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feed, wherever you get your podcast under Hoops Tonight. Follow me on Twitter, underscore JasonLT. I'm doing film sessions there every morning, as well as posting show announcements. And then last but not least, we will continue our mailbag later this week. No, not today, but we're going to do uh, plenty of mailbag questions throughout the week. So keep dropping mailbag questions in the YouTube Comments. All right, let's talk some basketball. So starting with Lakers-Cavs on the road in Cleveland. The Lakers are going on a tough road trip here. They played in Cleveland on Saturday night. They have the Sixers tonight. A little bit of an easier game against the Pistons coming up, and then they have to go on the road to OKC. So a big opportunity for us to learn more about the Lakers. And the first game went extremely well, considering a lot of specific factors. LeBron played one of his worst games of the season, uh, particularly in the second half, made a lot of bad decisions on offense and missed a lot of shots. And yet they still were able to overcome that and win. Thanks in large part to Anthony Davis got back on track in a big way offensively. You know, uh, Anthony Davis specifically in the post this year is flashing a lot of stuff that is more similar to what he was in the 2020 season when the Lakers won the championship. It's a shot creation piece that's so important with Anthony Davis for him to be as good as his peers at the top of the league because we talk a lot about the offensive fluctuations, but they don't properly factor in his defensive consistency because even a bad defensive game from Anthony Davis is still very good compared to the standard of a typical NBA drop coverage big, right? And so he's kind of oscillating between good and great on that end. So even though we're talking about some inconsistencies on the offensive end of the floor, he still has been consistently dominant on the other end of the floor. However, there's a difference between what the guys at the very top of the league can do and what AD does. And that offensive consistency piece is the one thing that's really missing from him being with those guys. The AD that we knew in the bubble, the AD that led, helped lead the Lakers to a championship, that guy is a bona fide top tier superstar. He has not been that consistently since then. And one of the most important parts to that, in my opinion, is that half-court shot creation piece. And specifically, if you guys remember in the Nuggets series last year, Jokic put a like basically outclassed him as a shot maker in the sense that he could make all of his little floaters and push shots and hook shots and jump shots, right? Now, is Anthony Davis has more or less abandoned his jump shot, but there are a couple of specific things that are coming around. He did hit a short pocket pass jump shot in the fourth quarter against the Cavs, the same shot that he missed a couple couple times against Dallas. That's a good sign. He had three hook shots that he made in the second half of this game, including a huge lefty hook, drop stepping towards the baseline over the top of Jared Allen. He is now 20 for 30 on the season on hook shots. That's 67%. That's Jokic territory. That's a big deal. Because he has such a high release point, and I clipped all three of his hooks and post them in the in the film thread this morning. And you can see the release point. It's super high. It is, and it's different than Jokic because Jokic is more powerful. But with AD's release point, he's capable of getting to that shot all the time. And if he can hit it at that rate, that's a big deal. And Anthony Davis post up this year, including passes, has been worth 1.17 points per possession. That is by far his best in a Lakers jersey. He's never crested 1.1 
in his time wearing a Laker jersey. Now, again, we're still in this first fourth of the season, right? But so far in the early going of the season, him being able to knock down that hook shot, he's been really good at making skip passes over double teams. Did it multiple times against the Cavs on Saturday night. It's been something he's been good with all season. That in particular has allowed Anthony Davis to be a much more reliable post-up weapon than he's been in years past in a Lakers jersey. Nine players in the league this year have logged at least 75 post-ups. Anthony Davis is third on that list. Pascal Siakam is first. Uh, obviously, the Raptors have been so bad, we haven't had too much time to talk about them, but he's having a good season in the post. And then second is Jokic, and then it's AD. And then from there is a massive drop-off in efficiency. Embiid is fourth, and a post-up from him, him including passes, has been worth just 1.03 points per possession. So among the high-volume guys, there's like three guys ahead of the rest of the league, and AD is in that group. Why is that important? Why am I harping on that specific point? Because that half-court shot creation piece, I, I, took a, I took a look for you guys at three specific uh, flaws with this Lakers team that were problematic. One, they did not have a backup center that they could play in the playoffs. It was a huge problem, especially in the LeBron on Anthony Davis off minutes. This year, because of the emergence of Christian Wood and Jackson Hayes being a better backup center than anybody had that they had last year, now the AD off LeBron on lineups have been good, and they have guys that can play in that spot. That's a huge positive trend for the Lakers, right? The second piece was backcourt athleticism and point of attack defense, right? Just which is all kind of part of the same thing, right? Obviously, still a problem this year. But, you know, the emergence of Max Christie, who was amazing in that Cavs game, the emergence of, of, of Cam Reddish this year as a perimeter defender, that's helped them within the concept of the regular season. I still think they need to make a trade to address that specific weakness. But if you guys remember, the third biggest weakness that I pointed to was their over-the-top shot-making, which is late-game situations, what happened to them every game against Denver, Close game in the fourth quarter, Jokic and Murray outshot them. Close game in the fourth quarter, Jokic and Murray outshot them. It happened again and again and again in that series, literally all four times. And so what they've needed is LeBron to be able to knock down jump shots and for Anthony Davis to be able to score in static half-court situations in the post. 80s hook shot being as dialed in as it is, and LeBron James' jump shot being as dialed in as it is. Even after last night, he's still at right about 1.1 points per jump shot. Those two trends are very positive trends for this Lakers team. That's what makes me believe they've. if, if that trend continues through the season, that checks the overtop shot making piece. That's the type of shot making they needed to win in 2020, and that would work again. The backup centerpiece is solidified. It's really just that that perimeter athleticism piece that they're going to have to solidify. Now, Max Christie, again, is an example of a regular season uh, you know, solution for that problem. His individual defense, not just in this Donovan Mitchell game against Cleveland, but also in the game against Dallas. He had several very good defensive possessions against Kyrie Irving, sliding his feet, contesting shots, um, you know, just doing his job at the point of attack to be disruptive. And I thought he did an amazing job against Donovan Mitchell, a much better job even than he did against Kyrie. It's the unique combination of the lateral quickness to stay in front against good athletes, top-tier athletes, the strength to be able to absorb contact in the chest when you do beat players to his spot, and then third, the length to bother a pull-up jump shot. There were two pull-up jump shots from Donovan Mitchell in the crunch time portion of this game where he tried to drive by Max. Max took contact in the chest, offered a late contest, and forced him into misses, which is the best you can hope for against the best guards in the league. And when you can disrupt their rhythm and take away the easy stuff they get, you can get them to miss a few 
uh, pull-up jump shots in a row, and that can go a long way, right? I thought his shot selection was really good in this game. Again, offense is a huge part of that role as well. He only took two of what I would consider to be tough shots, and it was that step-back jump shot over Donovan Mitchell, and then the, the second step-back jump shot that he took, I want to say I want to say it was over Lavert. I can't remember exactly who it was, but it was the mid-range one. And both of them were clock-running-down situations. That's the thing. Take your wide-open catch-and-shoot threes, drive closeouts when you can, and then if the ball ends up in your hands with five seconds left on the shot clock and there isn't time to get the ball somewhere else, that's when you start practicing and demonstrating that you have the ability to do additional stuff off the bounce. Early in the season, I thought he was forcing things a little bit on the offensive end of the floor, trying to demonstrate what his work was this summer. And I'm not debating whether or not that work was there or whether or not he's capable of that kind of stuff, but it's better to ease into it through rescue possessions and then slowly earning cachet with the staff and with your teammates to be more aggressive from there. But really encouraging game from, from Max Christie. And again, like it's one of those things where I, I would tell you, like Lakers fans, it if Max Christie or Cam Reddish is starting for you in the playoffs, I think that's a huge problem. Not not because those guys aren't capable, but when you really put together what you expect from a veteran player in a big spot in a playoff series and everything we know about young players in the playoffs, I'd rather have both of them coming off the bench in that type of role. As someone who roots for the Lakers, that's just my kind of take on the whole situation. So I want to be careful about like promoting it as a postseason fix because I don't feel that way. But within the context of the regular season, especially when Jared Vanderbilt's out, especially when Gabe Vincent's out, having guys like Max Christie and Cam Reddish being able to defend at the point of attack, uh, point of attack the way they do really helps you in the dregs of the regular season. Um, Lakers, 7-2 and two in their last nine. Fourth in defense over that span, fourth in rebounding over that span. That's a big deal for how much they struggled on the glass early in the season. And more importantly, they're starting to beat some good teams. They've won three of their last five against winning teams. Both of their losses were on the tail ends of back-to-backs, and one of them was the Mavs game where they had a two-point lead in the final minute. So all trends kind of pointing positively for the Lakers now. Jared Vanderbilt's coming back. Rui Hachimura should be back before too long. Gabe Vincent should be back for before too long. A lot of things pointing in the right direction for the Lakers. On the Cavs, I wanted to hit two specific topics. One, Mobley in the short roll. He was awesome in the second half of this game, operating out of the short roll, making that lob pass to Jared Allen. The Lakers did to Mobley what every team has done to the Cavs since the Knicks kind of demonstrated it as a strategy to beat them in the playoffs, which is put your best rim protector not on Mobley guarding pick and roll, but put him on Allen and basically have him split the difference between the two and prey on Evan Mobley's inability to make shots over the top. Evan Mobley's a good passer, but if you bait him into shots, he can struggle there, right? And one of the things he did really well in this series, or this game, after struggling in the Knicks series was getting to AD to kind of bite one way or another and then making reads. There were three buckets that he got uh, that he directly generated on the short roll in the uh, third and fourth quarters of this game. One of like one of them was 80 steps up, lob pass to, to, um, to Jared Allen for the dunk. The very next time they ran that action, and again, what you're seeing is you're seeing like, Whoever the foreman is, if it's LeBron or if it's you know Jackson Hayes or Jackson Hayes is functioning as the uh, as the 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 five next to AD, but AD's in that dunker spot role, right? On those possessions, what they're doing is they're sending the second defender up and just banking on AD getting a stop in a one on two situation. And on the next one, you know, uh, because Evan Mobley had just thrown that lob up to Jared Allen, AD kind of takes a step back. 
And that was what allowed Evan Mobley to attack his chest and get that and one at the end of the game that brought him back within one point. I think that got it to like 112-111, right? And then again in the final minute after Evan Mobley had just scored on AD by attacking his chest and pump faking and getting the and one, AD stepped up again and he was able to throw the lob pass for the easy dunk to Jared Allen. You guys get the drill. That's a specific dynamic that... The, the Cavs need as many reps for Evan Mobley as possible because that specific dynamic to me matters just as much as the spot-up shooting from the three spot, right? I mean, like, don't forget last year, the Cavs still had the ability to throw Karis LeVert at the three and run Garland, Mitchell, LeVert with Allen and, and Mobley, and it still wasn't enough to get them over the top against the Knicks. It's not just about those three guys. It's about the offensive dynamic between the two big guys. And then lastly, Craig Porter Jr. I... um. Uh, familiarized myself with this game for the first time while I was out of town for Thanksgiving on, I think it was like Monday or Tuesday, I think it was Tuesday night. Um, the They played the Sixers, if I remember correctly, and beat them in Philly. And that was my first time kind of watching Craig Porter Jr. And then this was my second time in this Lakers game. And he's been really, really good to uh, in, this, in this stretch here while they've been dealing with some injuries in the backcourt. 63 pick and rolls so far that Craig Porter Jr. has run for the Cavs, leading to 83 points. That's 1.32 points per possession, which is insane. He's 14 for 26 from the field when he personally shoots out of pick and roll. He is 10 for 21 on pull-up jump shots so far this year, and he's shooting 70% at the rim. And, you know, it's weird because, like, if I had to describe how he's having this kind of success, it's difficult to do so. He's playing like a big guard in the sense that he's slow motion, Great at leveraging his size when he gets angles. Great at using bumps to generate contact. Operating really close to the rim. But he's not a particularly big guard. He's like 6'1", 6'2". He's got like a 6'4 wingspan. And he's a good athlete. Like he's a good leaper and a pretty quick and good start-stop quickness. But not like any sort of top-tier athlete or anything like that. He's out there just methodically getting buckets. And if I had to kind of put a, you know, because if you if you go back and look at uh, his numbers at Wichita State, he was a 72nd percentile pick-and-roll guy. So he was a good pick-and-roll player, but he's below a point per possession. But in the college game, it's just more crowded. It's harder to score. So that's an important context there. You don't have guys just lighting it up and pick-and-roll in college. Um, there, uh, but it's still at that level, 72nd percentile, 50% effective field goal percentage on pull-up jump shots at Wichita. Very good at the rim while he was there. So like, he's basically just a better version of himself in, so far in these small uh, samples in the NBA. Why is that? I, I don't, you know, the, the best way that I could try to describe it is to say, I feel like the NBA game, because of the increase in spacing as virtue of just more offensive skill on the court, right? Like, I've been watching a little bit more college basketball this year just because the the University of Arizona's team has been a team that I'm particularly excited about. And every time I watch college hoops, I'm, it's like an eyesore to, to deal with the just the sheer, like, there's just not anywhere near as much ball handling and shooting on the floor as you see in the pros. And so it can get really kind of like stagnant and, and it's it's like watching a rock fight every single game, right? Especially with how hard the teams are playing on the defensive end of the floor. Uh, but like what will end up happening in a lot of these cases is like, some guys get to the next level and that additional spacing and freedom to cook, so to speak, actually suits them really well. And I think Craig Porter is one of those guys. I think he's one of those guys that's like, shit, I got all this room and like I'm getting a good matchup, you know, because Donovan's getting a, a getting a better matchup, you know, or Darius is getting a better matchup. And like I, I have this space to work and they're 
guarding me with traditional drop coverages and he's just getting to his spots and knocking down shots. It's very old fashioned, big guard stuff. A lot of like short pull up jump shots, a lot of short, you know, bankers and floaters and stuff along those lines. He's been really, really impressive here. Again, uh, 86 points on uh, 83 points on 63 pick and rolls so far this season. That's outstanding stuff. Um, Cavs got a big bounce back win against Toronto after their loss to the Lakers. They're seven and four in their last 11, 11th in defense and 20th in offense over that span. All right, moving on to our next game, the Celtics and the Magic. Bunch of guys missing from this game. The Magic were missing Wendell Carter Jr. and Markel Fultz. The Celtics were were without Drew Holiday, and then Kristaps Porzingis strained his calf muzzle and, and missed a good portion of this game. But the story of this game is that the Magic did to the Celtics what they've been doing to everyone all season, which is just physically bullying them at every level of the game. Uh, during the third quarter run, a lot of Paolo and Franz attacking the smaller Celtics guards in cross matches in transition or just in guard-guard screens or guard-forward screens to get switches. And that both of those guys are just so good at playing and leveraging their size. Paolo's got a little bit of that, like... LeBron like full court post up thing going on where he'll just like rip through to one side and when he gets cut off he'll just spin back the other way and when he gets cut off he'll just spin back the other way and he's just so damn big and good at protecting the ball and he's got all those little pop shots in the lane and then he's also a pretty good passer for a young post player which is rare to see um and then you know obviously with uh uh with Franz Wagner it's a little bit more of a perimeter like shot creation type of piece a little bit more uh perimeter oriented but both of them were killing the Celtics guards and switches and cross matches and then in the fourth quarter that both of them were just attacking Luke Cornett the the Celtics were doing a ton of switching in this particular game and they were switching Cornett onto Paolo and Franz at the end of this game thinking oh size for size right but the thing is is like Paolo's as big as a center and so and Franz is like got a, a plays really big for a perimeter player as well not as big as Paolo but pretty big as well and you know it's like Franz has got uh Cornette on the left side of the floor against a switch and he just gets a little bit of an angle on the left side and then he just beats him all the way to the rim and makes that right-handed layup on the left side of the rim Paolo same kind of thing just like a left to right crossover to get just a little bit of separation and then he's so much he's every bit as big as Cornette. So he just goes right through him all the way to the basket towards that right side. And that, like that's kind of the unique, exciting piece of what makes this Magic team so good is it's like they are kind of set up to win rock fights with their ability to attack matchups. And then in the physical areas of the rock fight, they're going to kill you. They're, they're the only team in the league right now that's top five in both defense and in rebounding. And when you combine that with high-level point-of-attack defense and just kind of like a, a power downhill offensive game, they're just a big pain in the ass to play against. That's the phrase I've been using a lot this season, and it's just that's what it's like watching – um, watching teams deal with Orlando on a night-in, night-out basis. Mo Wagner was a hero in this game. I think he had like 27 points. He was killing them in the role. He's very good at protecting the basketball when he's doing his like power moves towards the basket. So like he'll catch the pass in the pocket and you'll see like O'Shea Brissett recover back in front of him and he'll just drop that shoulder and tuck it far back to protect it. And then after he's created that space, he's going right up to the rim to finish. He had several buckets in the role in this particular game. He's been one of the 10 best role men in the NBA so far this year. 1.33 points per possession, shooting 64%. Out of 37 players to log at least 25 role man possessions, uh, Wagner ranks ninth in efficiency right now. Hit a couple of huge threes in this game as well. Big one in the corner in the fourth quarter. Um, he just brings like another layer because he's another guy who just plays with a lot of straight line power and he's coming off the bench 
for this group, right? Uh, Cole Anthony in pick and roll. I've been really impressed with him. They, the, the Magic are doing a lot of similar stuff that you're seeing around the league. One of the sets that everyone in the league is running right now, the, the Kings in particular, are just absolutely killing everybody with this set. But like teams are just coming up and setting like a bracket screen. They start in like a horn set. They'll have shooters in the corners and they'll have you know your primary ball handler up top. And they'll basically come up and screen both sides of the ball handler way far away from the basket, like 30, 35 feet away. And what they'll do is they'll have one of the roll men roll and the other guy pop and essentially just generates confusion in the pick and roll coverage because it's a three-man action. Three-man three action in particular are just harder to defend because they're always coming from different angles. You don't know who's popping. You don't know who's rolling, all, all that kind of stuff, right? And Cole Anthony had a lot of success in pick and roll. Not just that, but also Spain pick and roll. There was a... Um, a possession where I, I clipped this and put it in the film thread where Caleb Houston set a, a perfect back screen on Al Horford, which put Jason Tatum in this awkward position where he's guarding Caleb Houston. And so now Horford's out as the screen roll, uh, the, the roller defender. So now Tatum's back and he like is like, ah, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so he ends up recovering to the big man and leaves a wide open lane for uh, Cole Anthony to go to the basket and get a bucket on, on Peyton Pritchard. Just in general, uh, a Cole Anthony brings kind of like a, a a he out of all the backcourt guys, including Markel Fultz, he's their best like live dribble shot creator. And so, in a lot of cases, he ends up being the guy they lean on a lot to create offense and slow down half court environments. And he's done a really nice job there this year. Caleb Houston fifteen uh, plus fifteen in nine minutes without taking a single shot. Excellent defense at the point of attack. Had a big steal that led to a run out layup at the end of this game. Attacking the glass, he had a big offensive rebound at the end of this game. I thought that was a good shift for him. Uh, Orlando has won seven games in a row now. At 12 and 5, they now have the third best record in basketball. They're 12th in offense, fourth in defense, and seventh in um in rebounding over this seven-game stretch. They are six and four against teams that are five hundred or better. They are five and three on the road. And over the stretch, they beat the they have beat uh just over the course of the season, they have beat the Celtics, the Nuggets, the Lakers, and the Bucks. So of the Six teams that I started the year with as top tier contenders, they've played five games against them, and they've beat. Uh, they've uh, gone four and one of those games, and the one they lost was to the Lakers, which they avenged when the Lakers went to Orlando and beat them. And like I said, twelfth in offense, fourth in defense, seventh in rebounding over this seven game span. But they are the only team in the NBA for the whole season that is top five in both rebounding and defense. They are for real. They are not going anywhere. They've arguably been the most impressive team so far in this regular season in terms of winning relative to what their strength of schedule has has put in front of them. The Celtics. This game got away from them quickly. They were up 12 early in the third quarter. Orlando really took advantage of their front line with Porzingis out, like we talked about, really attacking uh, uh, Al Horford and... Um, and uh, uh, Luke Cornett in space. It's a bad matchup without Porzingis and Drew Holiday because it's such a physically imposing team. Shot selection did become an issue in that third quarter run. It's a lot of the same stuff I've been talking about all season. Like Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum both took a couple of really tough pull-up jump shots. Like Jalen Brown like barely grazed the front of the rim on one. Jason Tatum took like a really tough right shoulder fadeaway. Derek White, it's the whole team, but like a lot of these guys, they just get, they're just too quick to take that type of three, right? Like there was a play where, you know, uh, uh, Derek White comes flying off a screen along the right wing and rises up off the catch and knocks down the three. And it was a tough shot, like really a tough shot. And on the very next possession, he just 
jacks up a transition pull-up three on the left wing because he's like, oh, I'm hot now. So it's like, I'm just going to take this. And it's like, there should literally never be a possession where Derek White just runs up the floor and takes a transition three in the first five seconds when you've got Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown on the floor. It's just, you can get a better shot. It's, It's one thing like... If you've made several in a row, you just made a you made one really tough movement three, kind of going to his right on the right wing, and then it's like showtime. I'm going for this. Al Horford has been, you know, uh, he's been better this year on his pull up jump shots, but or on his spot up jump shots, but he's still 0.96 points per jumper. And that dude in that second half against Orlando, if he saw this much space, he was rising up and firing early in the shot clock. It's a lot of like taking good shots and not hunting great shots. And that specifically kind of compounds because then it gets like when you have turnovers and quick shots, that just feeds the the offensive rhythm for Orlando. The best way to disrupt rhythm in your opponent is to slowly execute on offense because if they have to, if they have to defend for 20 seconds, that will disrupt their offensive rhythm. If they defend for eight seconds and get a long rebound or a turnover off of a quick three or a bad pass, they're running down the other end with their athleticism and they're feeling themselves and they're playing on that energy. And so, again, like I, it's a nitpicky thing with the Celtics, but it is a reality. Despite all that, though, they've still won eight out of ten and they still have the best record in the league. And uh, yeah, so the Celtics are still amazing and they're going to be really high on my power rankings, as you guys will see very soon. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ever needed something for your home but don't have the cash or credit to pay for it? Let's chat about how to get what you need when you need it. You can do that at errands. Yep, you can rent to own appliances like washers, dryers, or refrigerators, furniture for your living room or bedroom, even tech like computers and gaming systems. Plus, errands has great brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. And you can pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But here's the cool part. Say you're renting a 65-inch smart TV and decide you don't want it anymore. At Aaron's, you can return it at any time. Or maybe you want to downsize to a 55-inch or upgrade to an 86-inch. You can do that too. Return it, then take home something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. So check out your nearest Aaron's store or visit Aaron's.com for more details. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. 
Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. All right, moving on to Sixers Thunder. The I thought the biggest thing that stood out to me on film in this game was just the the impact of uh, Philly's perimeter size against Oklahoma City. Now, again, um, you got to think, because Shea lit them up in the first half, but they held Shea to 3-for-11 shooting in the second half of this game, and a big part of it was like a steady diet of big bodies. It's like Robert Covington's guarding him. Nick Batum's guarding him. Both those guys are 6'8", right? Like, you've got Tobias Harris guarding him in a lot of possessions. He's 6'8 and strong. You've got, like, D'Anthony Melton was, like, the one smaller guy that he's going against, and D'Anthony Melton is a good athlete with decent length for the backcourt position, right? And so one of the things you'll see, like, Shea is is a guy that loves to get to spots kind of in that short to mid-range and take little shots over the top, which he can really kill undersized guards with. But against bigger wings, it's a little tougher for him to get those shots off, and I thought they did a really nice job of defending Shea at the point of attack, forcing him into these tougher kind of contested step backs. He wasn't making the tough ones, and the dead giveaway that he was having an effect on him is he started pump faking a lot and started trying to foul grift a lot, which is a dead giveaway that he's starting to get frustrated in terms of just trying to generate his own shot. But it was a really good defensive effort from Philly, uh, forcing him to 3-for-11 shooting. Again, that's that's the way you have to beat Oklahoma City because you got to keep them out of rotation. As soon as Shea starts drawing multiple defenders, you're screwed because every other guy on the floor is such a good ball handler, shooter, and passer that like they can drive and kick you to death. So like it is vitally important to contain the ball against Oklahoma City to keep them out of rotation because a lot of these guys, you know, uh, are not as good when they're facing a set defense when everyone's looking at them and the help defense is loaded up. It gets harder. But those guys, when they have an advantage, can really kill you. And so I thought that was the kind of the 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 genesis of their third quarter defensive run that they went on. Tyrese Maxey poured in another 28 points. He's up to 26, 5, and 7 on 59% true shooting this season. He's one of only eight players in the league averaging over six assists per game and fewer than two turnovers. Now, a little uh, little trivia here for you guys. Eight players, over six assists, less than two turnovers. Take a guess. It's De'Aaron Fox, Malcolm Brogdon, D'Angelo Russell, Dennis Schroeder, Fred Van Vliet. Shout out Fred Van Vliet. Nine assists and 1.6 turnovers per game this year. Spencer Dinwiddie and Chris Paul. Those are the eight or the seven with Tyrese Maxey making eight. The only two on that list that are averaging over 20 points per game are De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Maxey. So Tyrese Maxey is one of only two players in the NBA averaging at least 20 points, at least six assists, and fewer than two turnovers. Really high-level half-court basketball from him. He had a this... I clipped this play and put it in my thread, but he hit this like really tough pull-up jump shot going to his right against Lou Dort. Hesitation on the left side, that dribbled through the legs, hard explosive move to the right, left-right takeoff against Lou Dort, who's been one of the best perimeter defenders in the league this year, and just rose up over the top of him and knocked it down. And so I wanted to pull up his ISO numbers. 1.1 points per possession in ISO. That's up from 0.83 last year. So in this big test of how Tyrese Maxey can handle being slotted as like your primary perimeter uh, initiator, he's basically knocking it out of the park. In another like wild finish and pick and roll where he got Lou Dort in trailing position and he had Shea Gilgis-Alexander come help from the baseline side and Chet from the top side. He was completely sandwiched, took contact, flipped all the way over on the other side of the rim and scooped it in with his left hand. I'm like, this is... 
this is ridiculous. I, there's not any, I, there's like only a handful of players in the league that can do this. Right. And, and that's what kind of gets me excited. Cause we talked about the perimeter defense and you, uh, Batum and Covington have played a significant role in that so far. And they've really beefed up some of their role player depth. And now what gets really exciting is like you upgrade one starter position at the deadline. Now Maxine and Embiid is enough. You know what I mean? I'm not sure if it's going to be enough as currently constructed. And we've seen that. They've struggled a little bit in their recent schedule. I think they've lost four out of six, if I remember correctly, um, against some tougher teams. And a big part of that is they need just that little bit more firepower. But it's not because Tyrese Maxey isn't capable of it. It's just going against the best teams in the league. You just need to have another guy, right? Like who's the... Who's the Austin Reeves to the LeBron and AD in this situation, right? Like, who's the KCP or the Michael Porter Jr. to the Jokic Murray? Who's that third, you know, kind of firepower piece in this lineup? And and Tobias Harris is having a really good season, but I just, I'm not sure he's necessarily that guy. I think I think they need just one additional really damn good player that can either slot between Tobias and Embiid or slot between Tyrese and, and Tobias that, like, and, and just kind of push them over the top in that sense. Because right now it's kind of similar to what I'd say with the Lakers where it's like, where it's like okay, if you're playing Max Christie in this spot in the regular season, that's fine, but not sure if I love that for the postseason. That's kind of how I feel about how they've been randomly trying, like they'll try Covington in the starting lineup, they'll try Batum in the starting lineup. It's like, which of these guys do you really feel comfortable about in a playoff series starting against a really, really good team. You know what I mean? And so, but the important part to get to that point is Maxi needed to demonstrate that he could be a perimeter initiator at the top level. And he's demonstrated that. And so now it actually looks worth it to kind of go all in with this roster. And I think it's something they're going to have to do anyway, just based on the fact that Embiid's kind of getting a little restless in general with the um, uh, with some of the issues that they've had over the last couple of years retaining talent. All right, on to the Thunder. So my theory so far this season about their struggles against big teams, I've talked to you guys about this the few times we've talked to Thunder. They're really, really good in every single way, except for they're one of the very worst defensive rebounding teams in the league and in general have struggled really bad against size. And so they were out-rebounded in this game 49-38. to They gave up 17 offensive rebounds. They gave up 21 second chance points. They fouled the shit out of Embiid a million times, sent him to the foul line 21 times. And so I want to I want to take a look back at their schedule to see if my theory kind of bears fruit. So these are the uh, these are the teams that I put on their schedule that I would list as either like normal sized or small, but certainly not like physically imposing huge. And that's Chicago, Portland, Golden State, San Antonio, Phoenix, Sacramento, Atlanta, Cleveland, and Detroit. Cleveland's got two centers, but they're both kind of thin, so they're not super physically imposing, and they're not very physically imposing in the backcourt. So, like, there are a couple teams on there that have some big guys. Like, Golden State with Looney and Draymond can be physically imposing, but overall, as a team, they're they're pretty small. I would still put those teams all as uh, – I just wouldn't ca- classify any of those teams as, like, really big, right? And then the three really big teams they played are the Nuggets, the Pelicans, and the Sixers, right? Aaron Gordon and Nikola Jokic – Zion, uh, Zion uh, uh, Williamson and Jonas Valanciunas, and then Joel freaking Embiid, right? And these, this is how those games went. They got uh, in the in the Nuggets game, the Nuggets shot 60%. They scored 72 points in the paint and absolutely demolished the Thunder in Oklahoma City. Against the Pelicans, they gave up 22 offensive rebounds and uh, lost at home in Oklahoma City, right? Sixers game. Gave up six, 17 offensive rebounds, sent, to the, sent the Sixers to the line 45 times, gave up 22, uh, 21 second chance points, and lost at home. And so, like, 
it's not nothing. It's something worth focusing on. I don't even really necessarily think it's a, a short-term problem because I don't think this team has win or go home, you know, or win or, win or fail type of expectations this year. But in the coming years, you know, that's kind of what I see as the major need of this team because Chet has been awesome. He was incredible again in this game, 33 points on 21 shots. Second time in the last four games that he's had at least 30 points. He had five threes. He was beating help from the wing with above the break shots. He's beating switches with, you know, good strong moves to get closer to the basket. Chet's awesome. But like, He's going to get bigger, but no matter what, like you can't just march out a bunch of uh, uh, a bunch of smaller players next to him. And again, like Josh Giddy's six eight, but he's not super physically imposing, right? Like Jalen Williams is basically playing the four for you right now um, when he's healthy, and Jalen Williams is six six, right? So like at a certain point, you need to have like that Aaron Gordon archetype, that uh, that that big six nine six ten forward that slots next to Chet in a bunch of different ways, right? Because that's what would allow you to potentially put him on pick and roll ball screeners so that you can keep Chet as the low man in a lot of situations, or run him as the low man next to Chet. That's what allows you to uh, have extra size and athleticism on the back line, cleaning up the glass and cleaning up and help situations when Chet gets pulled away from the rim. These are all important elements to defensive rebounding and protecting the rim, and they just don't really have that archetype of player and. I don't think it's a coincidence that they've literally been 11-2 against the rest of their schedule. Dominant against the rest of their schedule. And then the three times they played truly massive front lines, they've gotten handled and really struggled in kind of similar ways in a lot, uh, in all three of those games. Something to keep an eye on in the big picture. Again, I don't think it's necessarily a problem for this year. They are not desperate. They don't need to move everything to try to make it happen. Although, you know... With how many assets they have, I would argue it's probably worth doing anyway. Uh, but it's just something to keep an eye on in the coming years. All right, our last game before we get to our uh, um, power rankings. Pelicans-Clippers. Now, both of these teams have since played um, played an additional game. The Pelicans lost to the Jazz, and the Clippers um, had an impressive win against the Mavs. But my wife was working on Saturday, and I, covered, I did a deep dive of this game, did a bunch of film, and I learned a bunch of stuff about both teams. So I want to talk about them a little bit. So um, Pelicans have won five out of seven, even including the Jazz loss. They're top 10 in offense and defense and rebounding during that span. They're sixth in defense over that span. And this is where I want to get into this because CJ McCollum, as Shams uh, Sharania reported today, should be coming back soon. And one of the big, you know, catalysts of this particular run that the Pelicans have been on is Dyson Daniels has taken CJ McCollum's starting position. And they're sixth in defense over the seven-game span, in large part because of what he can do at the point of attack. He's kind of similar to that Max Christie archetype. He's in that like 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, range. Good strength, outstanding lateral quickness, really good motor, excellent at navigating screens. All the stuff that you look for in a point of attack defender. And he just did an unbelievable job on James Harden in this game. Just fighting over the top of screens to make things difficult for him in pick and roll. The few times that he ended up having to ISO him at the end of a shot clock, he couldn't even get separation against him and was forcing pretty ugly misses from him. He was just amazing in this particular game at the point of attack. What's super interesting about that is because he's been so good, it's created an easy role on the back line for your help defenders in Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson. Because when there's good ball pressure, it's much harder for the ball handler to pick you apart. It makes those skip passes tougher. It makes those pocket passes tougher, right? 
And, you know, it's creating a job that two guys that have been pretty bad help defenders over the course of the last couple seasons have been playing really good help defense as of late. I clipped a bunch of examples of this in my Pelicans Clippers thread. Zion Williamson, just in the second half of this game, blew up three pick and rolls as the low man just by reading plays well, kind of splitting the difference between the, the roller and the weak side corner and getting deflections with his athleticism. A couple of them led to runouts the other way. He was It was one of the best help defense games I've ever watched Zion Williamson play, which is saying it's significant for a player who's been a pretty bad defensive player. Brandon Ingram, it's a different kind of style because he's got more length and uh, length and um you know, ability to kind of bother shooters, right? But he, what he does a really good job of is when the pass gets to the roll man and he's the low man. Again, when I'm describing these help defense possessions, we're talking about the guy who's not in the pick and roll but's on the backside. So the ball handler is coming off of a screen. The screen defender's up high. They're bringing Valanciunas pretty up high to the level of the screen because of how good they've been in their help defense as of late. And so what's end up what ends up happening is whether that's Bi or or, or Zion or both on the backside, they are basically dropping down and having to kind of like court or like play kind of strong safety, free safety, whatever you want to call it, against multiple uh, offensive threats. The roll man coming down the lane, the shooter in the corner, the shooter on the wing. And a lot of times you need to kind of split the difference. B.I. does a really good job of this. We're like the the roll man will have the ball and he'll kind of like split the difference between both guys and kind of prey on their hesitancies, especially against the Clippers team that had some guys that, you know, don't necessarily like to take catch and shoot jump shots. Right. And, and if you can do that, that stops the, the, the chain reaction, right? Like if you, if you can get a, a shooter to hesitate, that buys you time to recover out of that kind of situation. And then he just has longer arms than Zion, so he can like bother that pocket. Like there's a play at the beginning of the game where the pocket pass uh, came into Zubak and B.I. like comes down and just swipes down at the basketball, which causes Zubak to like kind of fumble it a little bit. Then as soon as he swipes down, he recovers out to the corner. Zubak throws the pass to the shooter in the corner. B.I.'s already there because he bought himself time to rotate by disrupting the pocket pass. And that, that's the key. Disruption at the point of attack, disruption in the pocket – make easier rotations. And that's where like Dyson Daniels and just all three of these guys kind of working in concert. Herb Jones obviously is the the best perimeter defender on the team, but he, we already know that about him. So we're focusing on things that we're learning about the team, right? But like that kind of dynamic, all those guys, if all three do their job, that goes a long way towards defending those actions without giving up wide open threes. But it requires every single step of that chain working. And I, I think that that specific combination of Dyson Daniels at the point of attack with Zion and B.I. doing a really good job in help has been the, the catalyst behind their uh, really strong defense over the seven-game stretch. Zion was really good in this game uh, offensively. P.J. Tucker got a couple of stops on him, but then he kind of figured him out. The the thing that Zion does that's that that's kind of underrated is he's really sharp with his offhand ball handling. And so when he gets in traffic, he can hit these hard in and out dribbles and hard spin move dribbles with his offhand, which frees up the ability for him to quick gather and shoot his little left-handed floater in the lane when he gets cut off to his spot. And when he spit he can spin really hard out of the right hand, which just sets up that hard left-handed move towards the basket, right? And he absolutely killed the Clippers down the stretch of this game. Uh Herb Jones. What made three massive offensive plays down the stretch of this Clipper game. Hit a huge pull-up three over P.J. Tucker. Came off of a, a guard-guard screen. There's a switch. P.J. Tucker switches onto him, plays way too far back, and he just like confidently steps into a pull-up jump shot, knocks it down. Second time that season, this season, that he's made a pull-up three. Um, then after that, there was a play where he ends up running a ball screen with Jonas, and he's on the left wing, 
and uh, he's got the ball, and uh, PJ Tucker is icing the ball screen, right? So a lot, of, most teams will ice side pick and rolls, and what that means is essentially if the ball handler is on the left wing and the screener is trying to get him towards the middle, the on-ball defender will basically jump high side and force him to reject the screen. And then you'll see the big man drop further back into the lane, and they're basically conceding anything to the roll man to contain the ball handler. Now, should you do that to Herb Jones? Probably not, but it's in the scheme, right? And Herb, make, uh, Herb I should say, I was corrected by Pelicans fans that I keep messing that up. Um, Herb identifies that PJ's doing that, waits for PJ to jump to the high side, hits him with like a hard fake towards the screen, gets downhill, Zubak is there, but he just goes a long step into his chest and then finishes outside with his left hand. It was like a really high-level move in pick and roll to get a bucket in crunch time of a highly contested game. And then lastly, on that left wing, there was a play where P.J. Tucker, or excuse me, Paul George, got kind of sucked in and nail help, and he made him pay with that above-the-break three on the left wing. It was a really impressive fourth quarter offensively from Herb Jones. Jordan Hawkins, over the weekend, including the Jazz game, scored eight more points flying off of off-ball screens. He is now an off-ball screen shot attempt for Jordan Hawkins. So just imagine him flying off of some off, you know, weak side, you know, wide pin down or something, either taking a pull-up three or curling around it. On those shot attempts, he's getting 1.35 points per possession, shooting 66% in effective field goal percentage. 23 players in the NBA this year have logged at least 20 possessions off of screens, and his 1.35 points per possession ranks third. Anthony Edwards is first, Steph Curry is second, then it's Jordan Hawkins. So that movement shooter piece that they invested in in the draft is really working out for them so far this season. On the Clippers front, a couple of specific things that stood out to me on film. Um, catch and shoot guys just being a little hesitant in this with the stars. So like there's this concept of like advantage creation and play finishing, right? I always talk about the list of responsibilities that a basketball team has to fulfill on a basketball court. And like if you it doesn't do any good if one guy creates the advantage and then the let's say Kawhi makes a move and draws multiple defenders and makes a kickout pass to James Harden who's standing wide open on the uh, on the left wing. If he doesn't shoot that shot and instead waits for the defender to close out and then he decides to initiate offense, that completely is a waste of everybody's time and effort. Because what's the point of advantage, uh, creating an advantage if the next guy is just going to wait for the defense to rotate so that he can create an advantage? Everybody in this system is going to be in more play finishing possessions than they're used to because you've got all these shot creators. So everyone's going to have to get better at operating more off the ball. And there were way too many possessions. And it's weird because I'd argue that Kawhi and, and, uh, and uh, James Harden are probably your two best you know, catch-and-shoot guys. And they're the hesitant ones among the stars. Paul George is a good shooter, but him and Russ are definitely the third and fourth best catch-and-shoot guys on the team. And literally, they're like hunting shots and being super aggressive. And that just doesn't make any sense. I mean, PG it does, but for Russ, it doesn't make any sense. You need James Harden and Kawhi Leonard to be aggressively hunting their catch-and-shoot opportunities because they're great shooters. And if I can get a wide-open catch-and-shoot three, even a kind of open catch-and-shoot three for James Harden or Kawhi Leonard, that's about as good a shot as you can get on a point-per-possession basis. And they have to be more willing to take those shots. Clipped a bunch of examples in my thread of that game of plays where they generated an advantage and then it just James Harden would just pump fake at a ghost. And then the advantage is gone. And it's just like, that to me is... Because the Clippers are fifth in defense right now. They, they, they had another defensive masterpiece against Dallas the other day. 
all other switchable defenders, it's making it a pain in the ass for other teams to score. A lot of really positive things there. But the offensive end is not living up to what it should be for all the offensive talent that they have. And a big part of that right now is hesitancy from the stars in catch and shoot situations. Paul George, attacking the rim well. He's, uh, his rim finishing and attempts are up, but, and that's important for the record. And I like it when Paul George is driving. But he's making some poor rim decisions. There were two plays in the second half of this game where he tried to dunk on everybody. And like, don't get me wrong, those are cool highlight plays. And when you have an opportunity to dunk on someone in a pickup game, go for it, man. And I'm not saying you don't ever do it in an NBA game. Of course you do. It's an important part of that, um, you know, kind of like physical aggression that you want to play with as a basketball player. But on both of these plays, he missed wide open shooters, and they they were dunks that were extremely high degree of difficulty. Like it wasn't PG over Birdman. Like, I I am so far above the rim, and he's completely hopeless, and I'm just punching it on his head. That's not what these were. These were, like, in traffic, multiple bodies, full extension, barely getting to the rim, trying for, like, the supreme highlight dunk while shooters are open. And that's a rim decision thing, especially with this team. It's one of those things where you don't want to fall into the Celtics problem where poor three-point shot selection and poor rim decisions can make a great offensive team into one that is capable of these long extended droughts. And a big part of that for the Clippers right now is like uh, everyone just needs to make better rim decisions, right? Everyone needs to be hunting those wide open catch and shoot opportunities and taking them when they're there. Russ, you know, he had a really good bounce back game against Dallas the other night. In this Pelicans game, he's really bad. He's struggling with the minutes restriction. Um, He's shooting just 55.6. I shouldn't say minutes restriction with his minutes getting cut down as a result of him going to the bench. But a couple of specific things that keep shouting to me off of film, he's still missing so many layups. 55.6% in the restricted area. Out of 76 players to attempt at least four per game, he's ranked 67th in efficiency. A bunch of key layups that he missed in the second half of this game. And it always ends in floor balance issues. When a guard smokes a layup, it fucks up your transition defense, which can cause all sorts of problems with the team running the other way. Those, that's why those can be such damaging turnovers. Um, and then there was a stretch of this game where the Pels were basically, because the Clippers ran P.J. Tucker and Russell Westbrook at the same time. And that is a very interesting defensive lineup, especially when you're switching everything. But the Pels were basically just ignoring both of them. And it was causing a lot of problems for them offensively. That's been kind of one of the subplots of the season. It's like... The spacing hasn't been as good as it could be because teams are willing to concede threes to Terrence Mann. They're willing to concede threes to Russell Westbrook. They're willing to concede threes to P.J. Tucker. Obviously, you don't have to guard Zubak on the perimeter. And if you close out short on Kawhi or P.G. or excuse me, Kawhi or James Harden, they'll probably pump fake at you and look to try to generate some sort of pull-up jump shot. So, like, it, there, there's a lot of ways that you can slow down the Clippers' offense just by kind of gumming things up in the paint and ignoring hesitant shooters, right? And that's just something to keep an eye on for them offensively moving forward. They did bounce back against Dallas, though. Again, I, I watched this game, uh, I, what was it, on Saturday or Sunday night? The uh, I think it was Saturday night. The This is the perfect matchup for them. And by the way, it's shown in the standings the uh, over the last few years. When Kawhi is available to play for the Clippers against Luka and the Mavs, the Clippers are 9-2. and two, And obviously they've won both playoff series against them. So this is a matchup they've always dominated. And it's not hard to figure out. They can switch everything. They have switchable defenders. They actually have... With Russ and P.J. Tucker, they have like this... Uh, and Terrence Mann, they, they can be like super switchy. And there are versions of it where it's like... It's Kawhi and it's Paul George and it's PJ Tucker and it's James James Harden and Terrence Mann. And it's like 
James Harden's the one guy you want to attack there, but like the one thing he holds up pretty well against is a power player, right? And so it turns into one of these things where it, it kind of plays into Dallas's weaknesses, which and you can see it in the shot attempts. Look at Dallas's shot attempts in that game. Luca, 27 shot attempts, Kyrie, 22, and Tim Hardaway, uh, uh, 14. No other player on the Mavs attempted more than five shots. The ball's not popping around. It's not classic, beautiful Mavs offensive basketball. They just switch and force you to ISO, and that's how you get 49 shot attempts out of Luka and Kyrie, except for all of them are against good perimeter defenders. And so they're going to make some shots. You know, Kyrie made half his shots. Luka, not quite half, but like in terms of a points-per-possession basis, they're, they're not very efficient, and that's how you end up pretty quickly being stuck um, in a in a bad offensive game like that. And again, Clippers fifth in defense this year, and specifically the reason why this matchup is good for the Clippers is Dallas doesn't have the physical size to make the Clippers pay for being as small as they are. As I've talked a lot about, the Clippers small lineup is a little smaller than it used to be by getting rid of all their six eight guys, and so as a result, like you can actually beat them up um, on the glass and cause some problems for them with their lack of size, but. Uh, Dallas is kind of incapable of inflicting that. So if they can bait Dallas into their worst offensive tendencies and then on the other end of the floor be able to consistently match up attack against their weak perimeter defenders while not getting beat up in the physicality areas of the game, it's just really hard for Dallas to win that specific matchup. And I mean, you, you know, we saw Russell Westbrook attacking Luka Doncic and making all those plays and talking all that shit. And obviously Russ is, is very performative with that kind of thing and I mean it's classic Russ to play like really poorly for like two weeks and then have a good sequence and then talk a bunch of shit that's just Russell Westbrook in a nutshell that said like they're he's right that's the way you beat them you have to consistently attack Luca try to fatigue him attack the weak perimeter defenders wherever you can switch and stagnate uh, stay home off ball to, to stop them from getting the easy kickouts for threes and force them, their primary shot creators, into tough shots. And you can beat them that way. And, and that was how the Clippers beat them the other night. All right, let's move on to our power rankings. Um, so this is going to be a little different than what we did the first time because I want to do power rankings every single week. And I'm just going to rip through them. We're not going to do long blurbs. We're just going to update the rankings with a quick read-through of, uh, of the 10 teams at the beginning of every week on Monday. So, uh, and again, this is this is my power rankings are more regular season focused. The contender rankings, that's playoff focused. This is this is power rankings. We're just looking at who's playing the best basketball right now. Number ten, the Los Angeles Lakers, their first appearance in the power rankings this season. They have the fifth best net rating in the league since our last edition of power rankings two weeks ago today. They are also up to ninth in defensive rating on the season. Since November 10th, which was about two and a half weeks ago, the Lakers have not lost a game unless it was on the tail end of a back-to-back, including quality wins over the Houston Rockets and then two quality wins on the road versus the Phoenix Suns and the Cleveland Cavaliers. They are coming into a couple of tough games right now. They have Philly tonight on the road, Detroit on the road, and then Oklahoma City on the road. If they can get back on that uh, from that road trip at 3-1, and one, which means if they can get one of the Philly OKC games, I think that's a huge win for the Lakers. My guess is that they lose to Philly tonight and then they beat Oklahoma City, who struggled against really big teams, which I think the Lakers will be able to inflict on them. Number 10, or excuse me, number 9, the Dallas Mavericks. We wanted to see how they'd fare against a tougher stretch of their schedule, and it hasn't gone well. They did have a nice win against the Lakers in LA, on the, but they were on the tail end of a back-to-back, and it required a game winner from Kyrie late. And they lost 4 out of 6 overall. They got destroyed by the Clippers, destroyed by the Kings. They lost at home to the Bucks. 
and they got destroyed by New Orleans. But despite all that, they still have the ninth best record in basketball, and they are the fourth best offense in the league right now. Number eight, the Oklahoma City Thunder. They're a really good team with one fatal flaw. They're too small on the front line to contend with huge physical teams. That said, they are 11-2 against teams that I don't consider to be particularly big on the front line. Um, they've been dominant in basically every facet of the game except for the defensive reba- rebounding piece and on the scoreboard against those particularly big teams. They are one of only three teams in the NBA right now that are top 10 in both offense and defense, though. The other two teams are ahead of them on this list. Number seven, the Philadelphia 76ers. A little bit of mixed results in this stretch of their schedule. All these teams that are in this uh, section of the power rankings, it's been mixed. It's been a mixed bag over the last couple of weeks, but all of them are playing tough stretches of their schedule and playing good teams. That's to be expected in a league this deep. Um, but in this stretch for the, Phil, uh, for the Sixers, they beat the Thunder in Oklahoma City, they beat the Hawks in Atlanta, and they beat the Pacers, impressive wins, but they also lost to Minnesota, lost to Cleveland, lost to Boston, and lost to Indiana in the in-season tournament game uh, on the second night of that uh, three, uh, the two-game and three-night set. They are the third-best offense in the league right now, and the defense is starting to take some strides, and I'm really enjoying what I'm seeing from their big perimeter defenders. And then Tyrese Maxey obviously looks incredible. Number six, the Denver Nuggets. They're just floating the ship right now with Jamal Murray out with injury, and they've faced a particularly tough part of their schedule in this recent stretch. They're, um, they've been on a five-game road trip where they went one and four, again, mostly against good teams, all, all four of the losses against good teams. And again, without Jamal Murray, it's just tough to win those games. But still 11-6, and six, still one of just three teams in the league that are top 10 in both offense and defense. It is the... Um, the Thunder and the Nuggets, and then the Boston Celtics, who are further up on the list. They're still the defending champs, and Jamal Murray is on track to return very soon. Number five, the Milwaukee Bucks. They're 7-1 and one since our last set of power rankings, but they're not playing great basketball right now. If you go through their last 10 games, they barely beat Portland, came back from down 24 in that game, barely beat Washington. Then they got soundly beat by Boston. Then they beat Washington, beat Dallas. That's a good win. Dallas is a good team. But then they beat Charlotte, bad team. Beat Toronto, bad team. Beat Chicago, bad team. Then they lost to Orlando and lost to Indiana, both good teams. So over the last 10 games, it's been a lot of bad teams and then basically three losses, one and three against the good teams that they faced over the last 10, uh, over their last 10 games. That said, still 7-1 since our last rankings. And in, I mean, really just a fortunate team in the sense that they're not playing very good basketball right now on the defensive end and they're still figuring some things out from a chemistry standpoint. But... Because the league kind of front-loaded their schedule with an easier stretch of games, that gives them time to figure things out. And then hopefully they'll have it together when they get to the tougher stretch of their schedule. And they have been one of the very best offenses in the league so far this season. Number four, Sacramento Kings. They've won seven of their last nine games. They're ninth in offense, tenth in defense over that span. They blew out the Wolves in Minnesota. They blew out the Mavs in Dallas. They blew out the Lakers in LA. And they beat the Cavs in Thunder at home. They, They have been... Probably the most impressive team other than Orlando over the course of the last two weeks, um, if we look just strictly within that two-week window. They did have two road losses against New Orleans, just had a hell of a time stopping Zion Williamson. They're just not really equipped on the front line to deal with him. Number three, the Orlando Magic. They've won seven in a row since their five and five start. They're six and four against winning teams. Four and one against my top tier contenders. Again, like my top tier contenders were the uh, the Nuggets, the Celtics, the Bucks, the Lakers, the Suns, the Warriors, and now Minnesota have added to that list. And they've gone uh, four and one in those games. Their one loss was to the Lakers. And they turned around and beat them uh, in revenge style at home. So they've been really, really impressive to start the season. They are also the only team in the league 
in the top five in both defense and rebounding. They have been the most physically imposing team in the league so far in the regular season. Number two, the Minnesota Timberwolves. They took a bad loss at home to Sacramento, but Sacramento's done that to a few teams this year. Like I said, Sacramento's just been on this run where they're just kind of beating the shit out of good teams every once in a while. I think they, like, they've like they been running that bracket pick and roll that I've been talking about where they put De'Aaron Fox like 30 feet from the basket. Two guys come up and set ball screens on either side, and like Harrison Barnes is usually in there as the guy who can pop and shoot and and. It's just really freaking difficult to guard, and teams haven't really figured out how to stop it yet. Um, but yeah, so the Timberwolves took a bad loss at home to Sacramento, but um, they've been the most impressive team in the West so far. They uh, surrounded that Sacramento game by coming right back, and uh, uh, they won three games right before that against good teams. They beat Philly, they beat the Knicks, and they beat the Pelicans. And then after the loss to the Kings, they got back on track against Memphis. Like I said, most impressive team in the Western Conference so far this season. And then to me, the easy number one at this point is the Boston Celtics. They have the best record in the league. They have a league-leading nine wins against teams that are 500 or better. They have the best net rating in basketball. They have, uh, despite playing the second toughest schedule, I think they're a clear-cut number one at this point in the season. All right, guys, that is all I have for today. As always, I sincerely appreciate you guys for supporting the show. We have our uh, our check-in with Jovan Buha on the Lakers tomorrow, so uh, we're going to be doing that and then do a separate video that's covering the rest of the league. Uh, but we'll have two shows coming out for you guys tomorrow and back to our normal routine for the rest of the week. I'll see you guys then. Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed, and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary.